What's up, everybody? I'm Mike Wilson with Any Hour Services, and we're proud to help bring you this podcast. If you ever need a resource for information about your home's electrical, plumbing, heating, or air conditioning system, you can find Any Hour Services on Facebook, YouTube, or online at anyhourservices.com. Hi, this is Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. There are many life changes that can happen after divorce that make it difficult or impossible to uphold requirements of your divorce decree. The orders issued in a divorce are based on the facts presented at that time, but the circumstances used in issuing those orders can obviously change. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, talk to us at Cordell & Cordell. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. Welcome to Ideation Collective. I'm Jess Larson. Today on the show, we've got Arel Moody. If you make someone feel special, like, oh, I was thinking about you, or oh, like, oh, you're thirsty, or I'm even if I offer the water and they're not thirsty, just because you're like, oh, man, you thought of me, and there's like no reason i'm not trying to sell them something there's like i'm just doing it for the sake of doing it um it just does incredible things i just i can't really express why it's so powerful but you'll just see people treat you differently opportunities come to you this is another episode of our innovation and leadership series where we interview rocket scientists pro athletes hollywood filmmakers and a wide variety of other high achievers if you like what you hear, we're also going to be releasing exclusive bonus materials like PDF checklists, reports, and presentations, but only for members of the collective. If you're interested in those, as of this recording, you can still join for free on the Ideation Collective website, which is iCollective.co slash free. Again, iCollective.co slash free. Also, before getting rolling, we want to invite you to consider helping the charity our founders started called Child Rescue. We work to combat child sex trafficking in the United States and abroad. One of our foreign projects we're working on right now is helping to build an aftercare orphanage in Cusco, Peru. To learn more about that, please come to the Child Rescue section on our website, iCollective.co slash Child Rescue. So with that out of the way, let's get to the interview. Today on the show, we've got Arel Moody. He's a best-selling author. He's a public speaker, speaking all around the country and in other countries. Uh, he's got a really great podcast, The Art of Likeability, that's got over 80 episodes, 350,000 downloads, people listening in over 150 countries. Arel, thanks for being on the show. Hey, Jess, I'm, I'm so, so pumped to be a part of this, man. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, well, I think this is going to be a fun episode because both of us like to talk a lot. So let's let's talk about some things. So you've got this story of growing up in the projects and beating the stats and, and having your own million dollar business in your 20s. You've been featured at the White House. Um, you speak all over the place. Tell us a little bit of the, the pinch me moments of some of those things. What, what were some of the things that were like highlights for you going through that that uh, evolution? Yeah, you know, I think there there are a lot of different goals that that you set, and you know, I, when I look at like distinct markers in the sand that made me go, man, I'm I can't believe I did this. I think when my first book came out, which is actually geared towards student success, I do a lot of speaking in the college and high school market, um, in addition to more of the business side of things. And you know, when that book came out, it was the book that you know I wish I had um, when I was in school, and. There's a really simple piece of advice, you know, for anyone. It's just, you know, simply be the person you wish you had when you were younger. And that's that's what that book was for me. It's what I wish I would have had. So um, the book coming out, the book getting on the bestseller list, um, being able to get my first uh, paid speaking engagement and then eventually, you know, doing it over, you know, probably a thousand times at, at this point all over the country, do about 100 events a year. 
Um, you know, speaking at the White House, the Inc. 30 under 30, you know, being recognized by Inc. magazine, which for me for so long, I would read that and, you know, envision myself being a part of it. And, you know, in 2011, when when I was part of that with with the company I was running at the time was um, was incredible. Uh, been featured in uh, Forbes magazine, Huffington Post, Essence magazine and, you know, all these major publications that I used to read. So I think seeing your name in print. Um, for me, was uh, was a huge highlight. Yeah, and we're gonna we're gonna talk about that because I want to hear more about uh, the strategies that worked for you for that. So yeah, man, it's uh, it's those 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 are markers in the sand, man. It just um, it feels wonderful to to be able to start from from where you did and get there, and, and I really do believe it's possible for any human being to do. Well, um, I'm a huge believer in uh, capacity. You know that that you know humans are equal, and and we have these big capacities. We may not have the same skill sets. And there may be different probability of whether we deliver on that capacity. But, uh, you know, I love these stories about our past doesn't have to determine our future. Um, let's start with your podcast, though. Um, I obviously uh, found you through through Young Entrepreneurs Council, uh, where we're both members. And um, I, I thought your approach was really interesting. So let's talk about this. Last year and a half, you've been doing this. You got 350,000 downloads. You're the number one career podcast on all of iTunes in 2014. That's a big deal. What, where did you come up with the subject matter? How'd you know what you wanted the show to be about? You know, a lot of times when I, I think people are looking for mastery, they, they overlook what is, is right in front of their face. And I was looking for, you know, this next thing. I wanted to create this, um, you know, this content that I could leave that would, you know, if I were to pass away, would be like my, my, my message to the world. And I kept trying to think of it and, and it would drive me crazy because I'd look at my friends who, you know, and I'm sure you, you have a lot of friends and associates that you may not know personally who are just crushing it, right? Like doing amazing work. And you're like, I'm not good like that. Like, I'm not good. And, you know, the more I spoke to my friends, the more they kept saying, but Arel, like you, you, you're so good at getting people to, you know, to like you, to connect with you. And, you know, you're someone who can, you know, and walk into a room and, you know, everyone feels like they've known you for years. And I would always shrug it off because, you know, humility doesn't let you want to accept certain, you know, gifts that you have. And after a while, I started saying, yeah, I guess there are specific things that I do. I guess, yeah, well, I mean, I guess, you know, I see a lot of people not doing this, not doing that. So it literally came from, you know, I think a long time, maybe two, three years of trying to figure out what message would I leave to the world. And then I realized what I would love is if the world was nicer to each other, that people liked each other more, people liked being around people. And I think a lot of people just don't do it because it's not that they don't have the good intent to. I don't think people wake up every morning and say, today I'm going to be a jerk to as many people as possible. They just don't know what to do. And that's where the art of likability kind of birthed from that, you know, if I could leave that and if all I did was made the world, um, people felt nicer to each other. They liked each other more. They liked themselves more. Um, then I'd feel like my, my life meant something. And that's where the podcast came from. Well, it's interesting the science that backs that up. You know, um, for uh, at Ideation Collective, we're working on a program right now called Stop Selling, Start Advising about, you know, stop seeing your clients as a potential mark and actually care about them like a real human, right? Mm. Um, but uh, one of the pieces is that we're, that we're studying from is a CIA document that's now released to the public about the former versions of methodologies that they, they, they had for um, recruiting assets in other countries. Um, it's an acronym called MICE, where they, it was all these things about leverage over your asset, whether it's money or ego or ideology, these things, right? 
And the case that they're making for more of the Robert Cialdini, uh, his book Influence, you know, the, the professor out there in Arizona, and the scientific type of studies that they did about things, including likability and, and how much more powerful that concept is. Um, have you noticed, I, I imagine focusing on the subject that you see over and over, like this is a subject that is, you know, people are backing up in multiple places nowadays. Yeah, it's really exciting to see a lot more um, research and studies coming out to kind of prove what you know, what you feel in your heart. A lot of times, I think a lot of times we read studies and we go, wow, that's that just makes sense to me or that feels right. And seeing a lot more about it, because likability is an interesting term. It kind of either polarizes people or crystallizes people. It either makes them go, oh, my God, that reminds me of like high school uh, popularity contest. And I don't care if people like me, I'm just going to be me. And which I think is the wrong side of the coin to look at um, or the short sided coin or it crystallizes and you go, yeah, it makes sense. If people like me, they'll want to get to know the real me. You know, we meet so many people in a day that it's impossible for us to invest in every single human being that we meet to see if they're actually worth our time or not. We make very quick, instant decisions of is this someone worth me, you know, expending my most valuable resource, which is time. And if you can build more instant relationships and you generally have a good heart, likability becomes one of the greatest assets in kind of building a moat around who you are and what you do. That'll be hard for a lot of whether it's competitors or whomever um, that that might be like an adversarial in, in your industry to touch you. And it's intangible. It's not like you can say, oh, they're offering a low price or, oh, they're, you know, they use the color red. It's like, well, why do people like them so much? We don't know. So I think it's one of the greatest things. And it's great to see a lot of, you know, articles. And um, I'd love, I haven't, I've not heard about that CIA piece, but I, I would love to dive into it. So, oh yeah, so I'll email it to you. Or we can, we can, uh, on your page on Ideation Collective, we'll post a link to it. Also, Please so everybody do. can check it out. Um, it's it's interesting you talk about that. You know, when you look at the science of, you know, so a lot of our listeners are entrepreneurs, people trying to get people to purchase something they've built, right? And how much we, as as sellers of a product, a service, of whatever our, our company makes, um, we focus on logic and we focus on features. And in practicability, how often as consumers... You know, if two people have something kind of similar, we buy from the person we like, <laughs> you know, yeah. this, this same thing, whether it's getting hired, whether it's, you know, whether we're going to do what our boss wants us to do or not, what, you know, all these things, you know, if we were robots, there'd be all these lists that show up on an Excel spreadsheet, but so often it has to do with the emotional feeling we have towards that individual, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, there, there are actually service providers that I use for simple things like, um, dry cleaning or um, where I get my car fixed and I have to go extended periods of time. Like I drive like 45 minutes to go to my dentist and it's not that there aren't dentists that are close to me. It's like, no, I like this guy. I trust this guy. I know that, you know, this person has my best interest. So for me, it's a worthwhile investment versus just going to the person down the street who I don't have that relationship with. And, you know, what you said is exactly the biggest thing. You know, apples to apples, if you're offering the same service as someone else, you know, take dry cleaning, for example, like dry cleaning is dry cleaning, right? I can, you know, get my shirt cleaned almost anywhere. But what's going to make me drive an extra 10 minutes and bypass all these other dry cleaners to come to you? A lot of people think it's price and I, I don't. I really think it's like simple 
things that make people feel special, that make them feel liked. And if you do that consistently, you, you really don't have to worry about a lot of the other things um, most businesses worry about because people will be invested in you and they want to see you succeed. Yeah, no kidding. Well, let's talk about uh, more of the nitty gritty on the podcast for a minute. When you, um, when you were thinking of the different ways that you could get this concept out there, uh, what put you over the edge that, hey, podcasting is the method that I want to go for? You know, today, there it's so exciting for anyone who wants to create media because the barrier to entry is absolutely low. I mean, anyone can start a YouTube channel with, I mean, cell phone shoot at 4K. And I, I actually started with the idea of doing a YouTube channel. <clears throat> so I put out a lot of content on YouTube, but then with YouTube, you know, you got to get the lighting right. You got to do all this fancy editing and you got to, you know, position a tripod 75 different ways to get the perfect shot. And, you know, you got to get all – it was just a lot of equipment. And what I loved about the podcast is it's it's real simple. I mean, it's literally me with a Blue Yeti microphone um, and Audacity when I'm recording by myself or if I'm interviewing someone, it's just free Skype with eCam recorder, which is like 25 bucks, I think, to own forever to record. And I, I can record, you know, in my hotel rooms, I can record um, in my basement, I can record almost anywhere. So for me, podcasting was a very simple, you know, uh, barrier to entry. And then I realized if you kind of just look at trends, everything is moving to on-demand media, Right. Like I don't want to watch a TV show when you tell me like I don't want to watch Tuesday at nine o'clock. I want to watch it right now. And that's what Netflix does. It lets you watch whatever you want right now. And I felt with um, the radio, the ra- we, everyone loves the radio. We listen to it when we drive, when we're at work. But the radio is kind of almost evolving or um, I don't want to say dying, but I think it's evolving. And to me, podcasting is going to be the next evolution of radio because it's on-demand content. You know, I, I, I can separate music from radio. Like I don't need um, the radio to listen to music anymore. Before, I needed the radio. So now I'll listen to my songs from, you know, Pandora or from YouTube or wherever I'm going to get my, my music from. But what about the personalities that are behind the music, the content? And I think that's why podcasting is so fascinating because if you just want that content, you can get it whenever you want. And podcasting is on-demand radio if, if you kind of look at it like that. Well, um, it, it is interesting also um, because, you know, as we've started this show and I have my friends come talk to me about their podcast listening habits, you know, it's interesting that they don't listen. Like some of them listen on schedule every day on their every day at the gym or something like this. But others, like we just had a, a guest, a Johnny foreign guy just sold his company in Vancouver Island and he'll load up, he'll load up and he'll be listening to five hours of podcasts in a day out on the boat, out on the fishing boat. Right. And if it wasn't, if it wasn't on demand, that's not possible. Right. 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 Um, well, when you think about, um, the, the format for the show and these things, who, who are some of the guests that you've had that you feel like you've learned the most from or that have been uh, the most fun to interview? Well, besides just Larson. <laughs> yeah, obviously. Hello. <laughs> um, you know, there, there are a lot of great people that, that give very specific um, nuggets. And I think it's not necessarily just, oh, this particular um, 
person was incredible. It's more, hey, I pulled these incredible nuggets. Like we we had someone who was a, a bodybuilder who was actually a listener of the show. And I was just like, all right, this this will be interesting. Let, let's see what the bodybuilder is going to tell us. But, you know, his approach to um, his approach to relationship building about, you know, one of the things I took from him, which I love was, you know, you treat the CEO and you treat the uh, janitor exactly the same. And that, that's something that he took where I was like, oh, man, that's beautiful. Um, recently, we just had on the show um, someone who I think you may know, um, John Rulin, who is uh, about appreciation. And one of the things he does, which I thought was incredible, just like the nugget I took from him, was that when you give gifts as a business, what most businesses do is they'll put their name on the gift and send it, right? So like if I'm sending you a plaque or, some, or, or whatever, I put my name on it. So it's like a branded item. He said what he does is he puts the other person's name on it. And makes it a tangible use thing. So like where I'll have a client, I'll say, oh, thank you so much. Here's a gift basket. They'll consume it and then it's gone. But then what John will send is like a really expensive knife. And he'll put that person's name on the knife because they're going to take the knife home. They're going to cut with that knife. They're going to see their name on the knife. But whenever they see that knife, they're not going to think of themselves. They're going to think of the person who gave it to them. And, you know, there's all these incredible nuggets that I get from the people that I interview that I not only hope helps my audience, but I absorb into who I am and makes me a better person. That's interesting. Um, I do feel really lucky getting to do all the interviews like I get the most benefit from it, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> um, well, you think about this. There's, you know, iTunes claims there's over 250,000 unique podcasts on their system. When reaching number one for for career podcasts, uh, what do you credit that to? What did what advice would you have for other people that want to reach the top of a category? Yeah, I think when you when it's all about what you do when you first get started. Um, I think what a lot of people do is they put their podcast out there and they're like, "Here it is, everyone. Hope you like it." Um, and I had a very very clear goal on. Um, getting on the new and noteworthy list because if you can get on the front page of podcasting, um, it just opens you up to the community of people who are looking for it. And the very simple idea is you have to get your number of subscriptions high in a very fast period of time. So what that meant to me was like I literally contacted as many people as I thought were like friends who would do a really simple task of just like subscribe to my podcast. And I said, all right, I need you to Tell me you will subscribe on this day. You got it. And it's like my friends and family and, you know, I, speaking engagements. Whenever I did it, I made sure to say it. And then the day that you launch, you get as many of them to subscribe that day. And the subscription is like the most valuable thing. Um, you can get ratings. That's helpful, too. Um, and people leaving um, remarks, that's helpful, too. But the, the subscription is most important. And what's cool about it is if you put out about – I'd say five or six episodes when you first get started um, and you get every single person who subscribes and therefore downloads those first few episodes, you kind of get this huge rush on the iTunes, um, I guess, metrics. And I don't I don't work for Apple. I'm not claiming that I know the metrics. This is just has worked for me and other people that I've helped. Right. So they get this rush of subscriptions. They get this rush of downloads. And then iTunes goes, this this must be important. Like this must be new and noteworthy. So when we did that big push in the first couple of days of the launch, and then we did get featured on new and noteworthy, that's when we noticed a huge number um, of our downloads just went up like crazy. Um, the second thing to do, which I highly recommend folks do, um, is be a guest on other people's shows, right? So you look at people who are complementary to who you, to the audience you want to serve and say, okay, who are the top, you know, 
20 podcasts um, that I think are complimentary. So you just look through it. You reach out to those folks and you ask if you could be a guest on their show. Um, provide ridiculously amazing content. Um, there was one show that I was um, featured on, which is The Art of Charm, which is um, one of the top podcasts overall in all of iTunes. And um, I got to be on that show and we got a huge listener. I mean, they have like millions of downloads, right? Well, we got a huge group part of our listenership from those folks because they appreciated the interview we did. So I think if you do a big rush in the beginning and you try to get featured on other shows as much as you can, you can kind of pull. And it's not. And the cool thing about podcasting, just to be clear, it's not like those people are no longer listening to the art of charm and they're only listening to the art of mm-hmm. likability, right? They're, you're you're going to listen to more than one podcast. So the more, the merrier. So the more you can be on other people's shows, it doesn't subtract from their show. It only adds to the experience of the listeners. That's great. Well, before we switch to talking about speaking and books and um, what what would you say? So let's try and get you more more subscribers here. What is the payoff? People who are listening to this show that that should be subscribing to your show. What what's the reward they get for listening to listening to Art of Likeability? Well, the biggest thing is my mind doesn't know how to work in like theoreticals. You know, a lot of people say things like, oh, to be more likable, just be genuine. And in my head, I'm like, I'm, I'm a genuine person. I just, how do I show people I'm genuine? You know, what we show in the podcast, we have short episodes, which are probably under 15 minutes and then longer interview ones. Every single episode, you'll get very, very clear things on what to say to clients when you first meet them, what to do with your relationships, what are things you can do in the office? Like a very simple thing, just to get an idea of how specific we go, is if you work in an office environment, for example, um, let's say you're an entrepreneur and you have multiple people in your business or you work a day job and you're trying to, you know, make the jump. You know, whenever you go to the water cooler to get water, fill two cups of water, one for yourself and one just to give to a random coworker. Say, hey, you want a, a cup of water? I got you one. You know, it's these little things to make people feel special that go really far. And if you can learn systematically how to make people feel special and how to give to them, you build your likability. And then when you build your likability, you build relationships. And when you build relationships, literally success and happiness are a byproduct of those. And that's exactly what we show to how people what to do in, in the art of likability. You know, it is interesting when somebody finds out you were thinking about them when they weren't there, when you didn't have to. Right. How kind of flattering it is, how complimentary it is. It's it's everything. And, you know, one of the big tenets of, you know, we have five major kind of principles of the art of likability. And one of them is is special. You know, if you make someone feel special, like, oh, I was thinking about you or, oh, like, oh, you're thirsty. Or I'm even if I offer the water and they're not thirsty, just because you're like, oh, man, you thought of me. And there's like no reason I'm not trying to sell them something. There's like I'm just doing it for the sake of doing it. Um, it just does incredible things. I just, I can't really express why it's so powerful, but you'll just see people treat you differently. Opportunities come to you almost like a legend. Like people talk about you behind your back in in a really positive way. And if you can create those experiences for people and do it from a more, um, not just happenstance, but be more focused, it's, um, man, your life absolutely evolves and changes into what you want it to be. Sure. Well, thinking about evolving life, um, is there anybody that you feel like set an example for you early on on how to treat others, like someone that you want to be like? Yeah, you know, so the, the interesting experience about my life experience is that um, I grew up in um, in the projects in Brooklyn. And for me, the large majority of my examples were actually of what not to do. 
Um, I think it was, you know, I was lucky enough to have an amazing father and amazing mother, amazing older brother who, you know, very much loved me and, and gave to me when I felt like everyone else bullied me and picked on me. But, you know, I was surrounded by so many people that um, would push me down to put, pick themselves up or, you know, people who made me feel bad. So I, when I was younger, I had more examples of what I disliked and then I said I want to do the opposite. You know, when I got into college um, when I was 18, I met a, a professor who is a mentor of mine, um, was a mentor of mine when I was younger. And dude was an incredible professor of entrepreneurship. And he was like the first person to show me how to like function in the business world and how to be professional. And um, I owe a lot to to him and how he kind of took me under his wing and gave me the um, like, hey, Arel, you're really great, but you're horribly rough around the edges. Let's let's buff those edges up and, and you're going to do just fine. Interesting. Were there any uh, specific pieces of advice that you remember? You know, one of the biggest things was actually speaking, um, not just the idea of like professional speaking, but I used to speak with a, um, uh, you know, I'm from Brooklyn. So I would have like a Brooklyn accent and I would say certain words kind of harsh. And um, like, for example, uh, one of the things I had to work on was um, like the word summer or water. I would say summer or water. I would spell it like with an A at the end instead of an E-R. And, you know, one of the things he said is that when you first meet someone, you have a very short window to have them make that first impression of you. And you have to make sure you're thinking about all these intangibles, how you pronounce, how you dress, do you shake someone's hand? Um, and for me, it became I wanted to be kind of a um, this is like deeper philosophy stuff here, but I wanted to become a delegate of everyone who looked like me, who was brown, who was from the projects, who grew up on welfare. And every time I met someone who was successful or wealthy, I wanted them to say, oh, because Orel made it or because Orel is respectable, maybe other people from this area um, are as well. A lot of times when we find people we dislike, it's not uh, who dislike us. It's not because they dislike us. They dislike someone else who looked or sounded like us. So they box us into a category similar to that previous person. So, you know, he kind of taught me the idea of that, like, this is greater than just you. This is bigger than just you. You have to represent all these other people who look, sound, act like you. So it's you have a duty to create that best first impression so you can make other people's lives easier. You know, um, I certainly see that a lot in business. You know, you think about this idea, we get this advice, don't judge a book by its cover. Well, in reality, like you and I are both readers. Like I, I totally judge books by their cover because all, all the time. <laughs> and like sometimes I'm surprised because it sucked, even though it looked like it would be in a certain category of books. But like book marketers do a really good job in the, the fonts they pick, the colors they pick, the imagery they pick, how big the author's name is. And they're trying to tell you, this book belongs in this category. So if you're like me and you love the Jason Bourne fiction category, right? I'm looking for the books that look like the Bourne Identity books, right? Yeah. And sometimes you're disappointed. And then other times somebody's like, hey, you got to read this book. And you look at the cover and you're like, seriously? But it's like a friend that gives you such a good recommendation. You're so surprised, right? Um, and I think it's interesting that we have to give each other those advi that advice even though so often we find out we're wrong, whether it is guessing whether that's going to be a good book or not, or guessing whether this is the kind of person I'm going to get along with or not, right? Um, I mean, I know uh, certainly in the investment world, like those things you're talking about, grooming, you know, what haircut I choose to have. <laughs> do I have piercings? Do what, what clothing do I want to wear? Like it lets people 
like in some ways it's teaching people what we think about ourselves when we decide which category we want to be associated with through those choices. You know, and I can't stress and I try to stress this because it's so important because I get a lot of people who who push back on this idea of um, appearance or it shouldn't or, matter. It shouldn't matter. And, you know, people should get to know me. And, and this is the idea that is crucial to understand. I literally do not have the time and no one does to investigate every single human being that I meet and have lunch with them and go visit their family and, you know, find out about their dreams and aspirations because I I would do nothing else with my time. So what happens is every single person you meet, they size you up very quickly and they say, is this person worth my most precious resource with this, which is time? So if I, you know, your breath stinks, so your hair looks weird or, you know, you, you have a certain thing. You you can do that, right? Like you can have the piercings and the tattoos, but you have to also accept you're going to have to work that much harder. You're going to have to put in that much more effort. You know, we see the Mark Zuckerberg showing up to business meetings in like a hoodie and flip-flops, but we forget he's the unicorn, right? Like he's like the only real business unicorn that, that exists. So they think the exception is the rule. And, you know, I would rather hit singles and doubles consistently than, you know, try to be that one person who hits a home run every single time they get up. Well, and it's it's different, right? If Mark Zuckerberg was looking for something, right? If Mark Zuckerberg was, um, you know, in the runnings for the Nobel Peace Prize or something, he, he's not going to show up in a hoodie there. Do you know what I mean? Right. It's exactly. Like when you're in venture capital or you're in private equity, if you're handing out the money, you don't have to wear a tie. <laughs> right, right? right. If you're if you're handing out the money, you can have the meeting wherever you want. But if you're the one asking for the money, like anyways, it's a different story, yeah, right? No, yeah, no, and I have to say this because it's so important what you said. You know, um there's a, a a sports commentator who I love named Stephen A. Smith, and he either like rubs you the wrong way or you like him, but he said something which I loved, you know. You see a lot of these, um like these NBA players, and they, you know, a lot of them might wear like, you know, baggy clothes or, you know, kind of street clothing when they're kind of hanging out. And, you know, but if you watch every single one of them on draft night, they're all in suits. They all <laughs> got their hair cut. You know, they're trying to get on, right? Like they're they're presenting themselves <laughs> in the best way. And then once they get the million-dollar contracts, yeah, sure, then they might put the hat on backwards in the interview or whatever. Um, but when you're on the come up, when you're, like you said, <laughs> like not the investor, you do what you need to do, you know? Yeah. Well, I, and I think, I think shoulds, uh, people talk a lot about shoulds. You shouldn't judge. You shouldn't whatever. Um, but then there's real life, uh, which is exactly what you said about time allocation. Like our brains are amazing at efficiency. And the thing is, from a probability perspective, so often certain things about, you know, did this, does this person have a throat tattoo? Does this person, you know, is this person's suit from Armani? Like they, they do often have certain things that those guesses were right, which is why our brain depends on them. You know, so like mm-hmm. you could either, <laughs> you can either have theories or results sometimes. Right. Um, but talking about philosophy, I, I'm a, I'm a big philosophy fan. Uh, didn't you study philosophy as part of your degree? I did. I did. And my, my undergraduate degree is actually politics, philosophy and law, which sounds really impressive, but it's just one degree. <laughs> um, are there are there any philosophers that you discovered that, that really made an impact on you? You know, um, I think it kind of goes back to what I mentioned with the podcast. I don't think there's one philosopher that I said, oh, man, like Jurgen Habermas or, you know, uh, you know, 
any individual person, I follow them and, and I love them. It's more like picking and choosing, like, oh, I love the idea of game theory and prisoner's dilemma. Like, to this day, I still love it. I love the idea of, like, fairness and, I mean, in philosophy and, um, you know, what is considered fair. Like, this is great. Uh, it's a tangent, but it's important. Like, there's this great debate about what's fair, right? So, like, if I gave you um, a $20,000 raise, you're like, oh, my gosh, I, was, I wasn't even expecting a raise and $20,000. This, this is incredible. But then someone else you find out who does similar work to you gets a $30,000 raise. All of a sudden, that $20,000 raise doesn't seem fair to you anymore in comparison. So it's all these individual ideas of, of philosophy that I think really stand out to me more than just one human being. Yeah, I remember my philosophy teacher at college, like, uh, it was interesting how much he could challenge me, like, and... Uh, just the level of thinking that he was willing to invest in, like it made it contagious to want to think deeper uh, for me at least. Um, okay. So in a minute, we're going to talk about how cool it is to be featured by the white house, but going the other direction for, for someone who hasn't grown up in, in a really tough background. We talked earlier about, about my wife um, and her family coming from, uh, you know, apartment complexes where everybody's on welfare and, and some of the, the tough things that go on in, in places like that. What do you think um, the movies and things like that don't do justice to that someone who hasn't had to live in that environment doesn't understand how tough it can be in America, which we think of as such a great country? You know, uh, it's a great question, by the way. Um, I think the toughest thing is kind of like what you can't show in a book or a movie, um, or at least you can't depict it well, is those that like longing, that like looking out of your window, that, you know, staring at the wall or staring at TV and just kind of saying like, this is my life, you know, and what's interesting, and I think I'm actually really lucky um, in terms of when I was born, because I was born before the internet was like a thing, right? Before everyone could access um, the entirety of entertainment at their at their fingertips. So when I got bored when I was younger, I would have to like look out the window and and stare at this environment and say, I, I just don't want to be here. Like, I don't I don't want to grow up here. I don't want to raise kids here. I don't want I don't want this to be my life. You know, I think a lot of people nowadays, they could numb that feeling by watching a silly YouTube video or, you know, looking at their Instagram feed or, or you know, numbing instead of being very present and very deep with their emotions. But I think that very deep emotional trauma of, all right, I just got beat up. And, you know, in the movie, they show the kid getting beat up. And then the next day, kind of life goes on. But what they don't show is like everyone making fun of you because you got beat up for weeks after that. Or, you know, people saying, oh, I heard you got, you know, beat up. So I'm going to beat you up. And then, you know, threatening you. And there's like this deep emotional drama and, and kind of pain that comes from, you know, having that fear as a constant, as a constant presence. And I'm glad that I was born before the ability to numb that fear or pain with, um, you know, social media or YouTube videos or whatnot, because it caused me to really go into that pain. And at that moment, people can either get broken or they can get created. And I think for me, I decided like very adamantly that this is where I am now, but this is not where I'm going to be. And, you know, those those long, drawn-out pain moments created, I think, who I am at a much more deeper level. Um, that's such an interesting insight. I, I As you're talking, I'm just thinking about, you know, anybody who's dealt with some hardship that just didn't end quickly. It, it is a diff, it's a, It sucks when something bad happens. I, you know, 
broke my leg playing football, right? That sucked. But um, those things that last for a long time, it, it's a, uh, it's almost like it sucks because it sucks. And then it's like double <laughs> it's salt in the wound because it lasts so long. Huh? Exactly. You know, and it's like those quick pains, like, Oh, I broke my leg and then I'm in a cast and like, Oh, it's like inconvenient. That's kind of like, I, I, I categorize that as a sharp pain, like, Oh, like ripping a bandaid. That's a sharp pain. But like a dull pain is, you know, going to sit down in a cafeteria and not having anyone to sit with, or, you know, walking down the hallway and people are looking at you and laughing. Like, that's not anything that like you can do right now to automatically change, um, but it stays with you. And I think when we go through drama or we go through pain or we go through unhappiness, it's very easy to want to avoid it. It's very easy to say, you know, no, I don't want to do this. But, um, you know, I kind of learned this from Wayne Dyer, who I guess is a, a, a who pe- passed away, but is a philosopher, I guess, of modern time. You know, he said every pain, every emotion has its place. And what a lot of people do is they don't feel an emotion fully so that it, it stays a part of you. So if I never dealt with that fear of that rejection and I say, oh, I don't want to think about it. It's too painful. Then I never really cycle through that feeling. And it's always a part of me. But if I kind of go there fully, like experience it fully and then kind of be done with it, it has less power over you. So I think more people don't realize that th- if they actually have a bad experience, if you just truly go there and go deeply there, you can be done with it versus carrying it with you. You know, some people carry emotional baggage for the entirety of their life. It is interesting how that's a choice, huh? Absolutely. Absolutely a choice. To, to choose whether we're going to currently continue to experience emotions now from an event that's in the past. I mean, one of the greatest realizations I think we can make that that actually changes our life, what changed my life, um, I think the most, which got me out of kind of what I I call the project mentality, not like just the actual physical projects, but the mental projects, is when you realize every single thing is a choice. Now, now there are some countries where unfortunately they don't have such liberties of choice, but, you know, in, you know, first world countries, we have the ability to choose everything. If we don't like something, we we may not like the alternative. Like I don't like my job. I can quit. I can try to find another one. I may not like that alternative, but I don't have, like, I'm not a slave. I'm not forced to staying in it. The only slavery that exists really in this country um, outside of like, obviously you, you focus more on like the child slavery and, and those kind of things, which are real things. But if we aren't in those situations, like the, the really only slavery we have is the mental slavery we keep ourselves in. And once you liberate yourself from that and say, it is a choice, I choose my life. If I have the ability to make a choice, even if I don't like it, I can still choose. And then you choose whether you're unhappy. You choose whether you read a book or not read a book. You choose whether you um, invest in yourself or if you you know buy another pair of sneakers. Like it's all a choice. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Um, there's an amazing book called um, Legacy of the Heart the spiritual advantages of a painful childhood. Wow. That's Um, a great title. Right. By Wayne Mueller. And, uh, it's been really interesting as I've done coaching, you know, I do CEO coaching, but then the other coaching I do for free is for sex trafficking victims. And, you know, there's this, it's like a, it's almost like a spectrum. I find like, you know, there's, there's like levels of grieving for, and it's not just trafficking survivors, but other abuse victims I've coached. And they're, they go through like, there's, there's the anger, there's the grief, there's the things, right? 
And then for some of them, they really hold on to the self-image of a victim. Like you get to be a little bit special by having something so bad having happened to you. Um, but there's this price of you have to, you have to keep experiencing the pain to keep holding yourself up as this victim. And then there's other folks, uh, got a great friend named Savannah Sanders who, who just published a book and, you know, she went from being held captive in a massage parlor in, in Arizona as a 15 year old to now she's, she's got her degree from ASU. She's worked for the, for the, uh, state of Arizona teaching hotels, um, how to prepare for the Super Bowl and see trafficking that's going to happen there. She's written a book about it and she, she's chosen to give up the bitterness like, it's not that she condones what people did to her, but she's chosen to give up the bitterness about it. And as a result, she's like such a happy mom of these, these kids that are just the light of her life. And she's got a successful marriage. And, um, she's such an inspiration to me by like choosing to do the work to get through the pain, past the grief to like inventing the person she wanted to be. And it's, uh, it's inspirational for me where I feel like I haven't had to go through the hardships that she's had to go through, you know? Yeah. And there was something I heard, um, which, which she reminds me of, um, just how you're describing this, this young lady, um, that, and I, I hold fast to this and it, this is hard to, I think really stomach when you personally go through it. But the, the idea is simply this, if someone else can do something, then it's possible for me to do it as well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't know what it's like to be uh, a sex trafficking slave and, and God willingly I won't or anyone I know won't have to deal with it. But what's great about that, the woman you just referenced is she is now an example to say it is possible. You, like you can get to the other side. Like there is somewhat of a choice. And there are a lot of people who say, no, I can't. Like this was so horrible. There's no way. I'm permanently scarred. Over. I'm permanently scarred. There's no way. But it's like, well, well if one person did it, if just one person share, showed that it's possible, then then the possibility does exist. You just have to accept that. And that's the mentality I took with, with the project lifestyle and the, you know, welfare lifestyle. And, you know, a lot of people in projects say, oh, well, I can't get out of the projects. Like, you know, the system is set up to keep me down. And, you know, all of these, you know, these people don't want to see me succeed. And, you know, and my mindset was, well, if, if there's one person that grew up in a tough environment, and, and got out of it and did something good with their life, then it's 100% possible for me. I just have to believe and then take the necessary actions toward that. And just if any one person does it, then it's 100% possible for you as well. It is interesting how, what, a, what a, a service to other people those, those trendsetters and those trailblazers are for everyone else and how, like you said, like once you can learn the patterns of how others have done it, you know, we have such similar capabilities as human, like we have different, you know, talents, but we have such a similar capacity as a human to make choice. Right. Um, well, listen for you, did you have any set goals going from there of like, for you, was it, I want out or was it like, you know, my, my wife talks about, she wanted a two story house, like the happy families on TV. And, you know, I was listening to Jamie Foxx talking about he wanted to move into the neighborhood with all the, he wanted to move in the white people neighborhood. And then he jokes about how he'd open his window and all the white kids, teenagers were listening to NWA anyways. <laughs> but um, do you, was, was there, were there specifics that like, man, you know what I'm going to get? Or was it, no, I just want out. 
you know, mine was very like my my bar was set like I mean now I think of it like it was originally set really really low like I didn't have the dream of owning a Bentley and having a you know fifty thousand square foot home or anything like that it was just really simply I want to be in a home that has a backyard and I have a fridge full of food whenever I want it like it was a very clear simple you know original goal. And, you know, I grew up in, you know, in the projects, there's, there's there's grass, but there's mostly concrete. You know, there's mostly just buildings and bricks and concrete. And I was like, I just dreamt of like having a backyard and being able to go play in it and, you know, having like a basketball hoop I can shoot hoops in. And so it was like really, really small. And, you know, I think when you look back at goals, you have to set a goal that actually seems reasonable and real and Otherwise still it's a wish, huh? excites you. Right, because I'm like, oh, I wish I had a 75-foot yacht and I'm in the projects. It seems so unobtainable. I'm not actually going to move toward it. But I'm like, yo, I just want a backyard and a fridge full of food. Um, and actually, I, I have a foundation that I started that actually we, we give people a fridge full of food. It's called fridgefulloffood.org. It's like a personal passion project of mine to just, you know, give people that kind of gift. And, you know, that's what mine was, right? Like, I just wanted to have that. So when you set the goal, I think the goal can't, you know, a lot of people talk about dream big and, you know, these lofty things. But if you don't feel it and if you don't see it's actually real, it's much better to instead of saying I'm going to become a millionaire, say like I just want to make a thousand dollars a month. And if that would change your life, do that. And then once you achieve it, you, you set another one. But it has to be real and exciting. You know, it's fascinating to hear you give such a tangible example. I think about myself, you know, in my early 20s, I dropped out of university to become an entrepreneur. And um, I remember going, you know, trying to get advice from people that I thought were successful. And there was all these, there's all this kind of hype and this like, you know, like you said, there were these shoulds about how big my goal should be, right? And I remember like setting the goal to have a house on every continent. Like, and it was mostly like to impress people that I had a big goal. And like, as time went on, I, you know, in the back of my little like moleskin hand sized books, I keep in my pocket all the time in the back. I constantly like refine my destination, what I want out of life. It's interesting how over time, like I still want a dirt bike and snowboards and stuff like this, but how the house on every continent thing didn't, didn't last. Like it was, it was a goal that somebody else set. It was like a fancy sounding wish, but like. Yeah. It just, it didn't, like, I really didn't identify with it. It was living up to the shoulds of the community said that I should have this goal that sounds so big, right? Um, right. And yet how motivating, um, I don't know, it just makes me think we shouldn't be judging each other's goals because it's so motivating to set the goal that you actually want and you actually think is achievable. Right. And that, and that is the biggest thing. There's like a, like a matrix, I don't know, but it's like this, like if you imagine X and Y <laughs> axis, you know, you got one, which is excitement, and then one, which is believability. And you have to find an intersection between excitement and believability for whatever your current goal is. So like if just making an extra $300 a month means you could afford a new car payment and get yourself into a beautiful new car, like just aim for $300 a month and then achieve it and then move on. You know, going to the house on every continent, you know, it's just, I mean, the level that it would take to get like the wealth you have to create to get there, like there's so many other things you can achieve in between that that are just as exciting for you. And, and I think when you take some time to really figure out what that is, then it becomes really, really exciting. Yeah. You know, um, so you heard it here first, people set smaller goals. Okay. That's it. Think, think That's small. It. So you heard it here first. Okay. Um, actually what is interesting, a, a friend of mine, um, works at Whole Foods was, uh, 
telling me about uh, bringing in uh, professors from the Stanford, uh, what's it called, Digital Persuasion Lab. And BJ Fogg, who teaches over there, talks so much about if you want to do something, if you want to do something new, develop a new habit, whatever, that like that you need to find the smallest thing that you can do that can fit into the cracks of the schedule you've already got. And, and he says, that's how you get started. You don't get started with these big giant things, Absolutely. but, um, well, okay, let's go for the other side. Um, tell us about, uh, being featured by the white house. There's a lot of people that, that, uh, I think that would sound fun too. What was that experience like? Yeah. So, you know, the, the company previous to the one that I have now was called Impact, which stands for Entrepreneurial Impact. And, you know, when I was in college, I met my entrepreneurship professor and um, I started off-campus housing service for students. And I thought more students should be doing entrepreneurship. And then um, I got introduced to um, my, my good friends, Michael Simmons and Sheena Lindahl, who kind of had this idea for an extreme entrepreneurship tour, just, you know, bringing young entrepreneurs to college campuses. So I got involved with them and then eventually became a partner with them. And around 2009, 10, 11, the Jobs Act um, was huge kind of legislation. So it's like all about let's create jobs, 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 jobs. You know, here's the stimulus money to create the economy, stimulate the economy and jobs and so forth. So the the jobs movement was so big, they wanted to start, you know, looking at entrepreneurs and getting more young people invested in entrepreneurship. And we were doing entrepreneurship education in youth for, you know, for years. So we were actually lucky enough to be connected with them. Um, They kind of found us and reached out to us. And, you know, my my business partner at the time, Michael Simmons, is um, one of the most incredible connectors in the world. And, you know, we just met with them and, you know, had ideas of what we could do. And eventually it led to um, us holding an event two years in a row at the White House in which through the Obama administration, we highlighted young entrepreneurs who are under the age of 35, who were creating jobs, who were running successful businesses as a way to kind of champion the idea that young people can start businesses. So um, had the opportunity to keynote, speak there two years in a row to um, do the uh, award ceremony, the Impact 100 Awards. So um, it was absolutely surreal and Honestly, it felt fake when it was happening. Like when you get the email with like the, <laughs> the whitehouse.gov email that comes in, you're like, this is a scam. This isn't real. Um, but it, it, it was an incredible experience and, I, and I'll cherish it for the rest of my life. Interesting. Um, hey, I, I feel like we moved on from something too quick that I, I want to talk about for just a second. Uh, your, your foundation, Fridge Full of Food, um, yeah. we're going to put a link to it on your page here on the website. But what's the URL again for that? Yeah, it's fridgefullofood.org. And and how long ago did you guys start that? Um, that started two years ago. Um, so it's kind of a brand. I mean, I don't know if you consider two years old or new, but for me, it feels very new. Um, and it just came from a simple idea that um, what did I want the most? Um, and, you know, what was my goal? Like I said, it was a fridge full of food. So what we do is we find um, deserving families um, in the uh, Syracuse, New York area where um, I'm, I'm stationed now. And we, we locate them through different service providers that we know that are, you know, good families that might be struggling and just need some help. And we, you know, surprise them with an entire fridge full of food. And it's like, yo, this isn't going to solve all your problems. But, you know, when you have a fridge full of food, you can invite people over. You're happy to offer them something. There's, you know, there's this amazing feeling of opening your fridge and like, oh, there's the exact thing that I wanted. It's there. Versus, I don't know if you've ever done the open the fridge, close it, open it, close it. Like, hope it, you're hoping <laughs> Is this whole fridge condiments or what? <laughs> right. Is there something behind the ketchup I didn't see, you know? Um, so, yeah, it's just a personal pageant, passion project of mine. There's, you know, no real um, big, like, end goal or no real. It's just, you know, how do we, 
you know, provide the fridge and give it to people and, you know, just kind of do some good in the world. Um, what are, I mean, that sounds so rewarding, uh, for you to be able to offer that. It is. It's, it's a, it, it's just, I think also like you get to a certain point in your career when you realize like, I need to have something that just like feels good for the sake of feeling good. Like there's no other end goal. It's just like, I just love doing it. It makes me happy. And you know, let's just do this. There's no business acumen. There's no like, oh, it's really a way for me to do this. And then backdoor into that. It's just, you know, creating good into the world. You know, it's funny. Um, yeah, it's tell me if you experience this too, but I, we get a lot of compliments for this work we've done on child rescue for the last six years, our family and our friends and all these people have been involved in it. And sometimes I think to myself, like, you don't have to like make a big deal out about it. This is like the funnest hobby I've ever done. Like, sure. You know, I don't, I don't have those moments of crying when I'm doing snowboarding or art. Okay. Like the, <laughs> the downs really suck, but like the, the highs are like so much better than snowboarding or doing art. Like nobody like comes and says, Oh, Jess, you're so great for snowboarding this weekend. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Uh, right. Like for me, like it, it's like so much, like it becomes a hobby. Like it's so much fun to help someone else. I don't know. Do you, do you experience that? Do you relate to that at all? Yeah, it, very much so. I think that, you know, it, it's the weirdest thing. And I, 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 this is the best way I can describe it. There, there are certain activities that sometimes we actually don't look forward to doing. Um, you know, there are some times when I'm doing a fridge full of food project, like very honestly, I'm like, oh man, you know, I got this business thing I need to do, or I need this, you know, I got to call these clients and it's like, oh, I, but I promised I would do this. But then when you actually do it, you feel so good. And you're like, I am so happy that this thing is a part of my life. And I'm so glad that I, you know, I pushed myself to that. Um, the only thing that I can like equate it to for someone who maybe doesn't know what that feels like is like going to the gym, you know, like I don't ever look forward to working out, but when I'm done with it, I'm always like, yeah, I worked out. I feel great. You know? <laughs> um, and I think when you have these passion projects, they, they sometimes may feel like a, um, laborious, but then it's only the anticipation of it because when you actually do it, it feels like incredible and people around you and you do have that feeling of like, yo, like it's not a, like I don't actually talk about it that often because it's more of just a thing I enjoy doing um, when I do it. But it, it's good when it resonates with people and, you know, that that really feels um, it's just a sweet spot in your heart, I guess. Yeah, it is funny. I, I know what you mean about it's not always convenient. And then once I'm doing it, I'm never regretting that I'm doing it, you know. Exactly. Whatever, exactly. whatever. It's a meeting. It's a whatever. Um, well, listen, uh, any advice for us at Child Rescue about if you were us, what you'd do to get the word out more or just how to get more people involved in wanting to help kids? Yeah. You know, I, I'm, I'm just a huge advocate of the like the simple idea of, you know, kind of find where the stream is where the fish are already there and just throw the hook in there. You know, I think getting interviewed on, you know, complimentary sites or services or, or, or people who it may not be directly like sex trafficking per se, but you know, what are the philanthropic, um, you know, whether it's a podcast or whether it's a, an event where these people already are that have an interest in doing this or, or, or aspiring for an interest and kind of just plugging into it. I think it's just a great, um, overall concept and especially for what you're doing because the the message is so important you know who are the people that would kind of resonate or benefit from that and where would those people you know go is there a um you know one of the things i'm actually seeing too now which is actually just something to keep in mind like 
are you familiar with the whole um, like the infopreneur kind of seminar world? Are you familiar with that? Uh, maybe not. Tell me, tell me more. All right. So there's like this whole world that I'm a part of. That's not like, it's the business world, but it's not like the business world that you ever see on like Inc. Magazine or Entrepreneur. It's like more of these individuals who run, um, like, you know, Hey, you want to run an internet business? I'll, I'll show you internet marketing. And I have a, uh, three-day boot camp to show you internet marketing, or I have a three-day boot camp that'll show you how to sell from a stage, or a three-day boot camp that'll show you how to, you know, invest in real estate. Um, so anyway, um, there's tons of these things, and it's called infopreneur, like you're selling information. And one of the things that I'm noticing as as someone of a a really awesome positive trend in this world is that what a lot of these groups do now is they offer a um, kind of a philanthropic arm at their event. So here's how it plays out, right? Um, so I'll, I'll give you a perfect example. I just went to an event. Um, a great woman, her name is Lisa Sasevich. She teaches people how to sell from the stage without being salesy. Um, so she's a really awesome um, entrepreneur, really awesome at, at what she does. But she um, raised money at the actual event for this camp that um, provides camp for kids with cancer. So if you're a kid with cancer, you can't necessarily go to a normal summer camp because you have uh, certain uh, health things that are unique and, and sensitivities. But if you're around a bunch of people who are like you, they get it. They get the stress of it. Um, and this particular camp needed like funding. So what she did is she created an offer like, hey, if you purchase, uh, if you buy this thing, all of the money from these proceeds will go to the camp, but you'll also get you know, this audio program or this hmm. uh, coaching or this thing. And they raised like $65,000 um, in a day for for the camp. So everyone at the actual event loves it because they're like, wow, I'm getting this great good, um, this product that I want, which is going to personally benefit me, but this money is helping and it's like a tax write-off because it's a donation. And the person who's infopreneuring or running it, they love to do it, um, I think, for multiple reasons. One, because they have good hearts and they want to help people. And then two, it also, I, I, I believe this, I haven't confirmed this anywhere, like it kind of establishes in the minds of everyone at the event, like this person is different. This person cares. So it's not just a sales, like I'm just going to beat you and get sales from you. It's like I actually want to do good as well, so let's do good. Um, I've seen other people do it. There's a guy named, uh, guy named James Malinchak. He throws an event and the event I went to with him, he raised the money for um, this dentist who does like, uh, it's like smile and it's, uh, it's, it's for kids and it helps them who have like bad upbringings, have a better upbringing and smile more. So I'm just seeing it as a trend. So, you know, looking at those people who throw those big two, three day events and kind of saying like, hey, we could be a great you know, if you're looking to do like having a nonprofit partner or fundraising, we'd be a great partner. I think a lot of people would like it. And it's it's a very um, powerful topic that you handle. So I think a lot of people would resonate with it. Very cool. That's great advice. Thanks. Absolutely. Um, well, speaking of advice, I know you're a reader. What are uh, what are some top choice books in your mind? What what, what are some recommendations? Oh, man. So um, so there's the classics that probably everyone has heard of. Um, and then I'll give you someone that you, you may not have heard of. So Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Robert Kiyosaki um, was the, the book that changed a lot for me in my mind switch. Um, there's a really small book that's really good and really easy to read called uh, The Richest Man in Babylon. Um, and it's just George like – 
Yeah, yeah. Classic, small. You, you've heard of it, which is cool. Um, it's really these like simple principles that still resonate with me today. Um, so I think about that one a lot. So these these are kind of like classics, Think and Grow Rich, um, Napoleon Hill classic. There's a book I'm reading right now, um, which I actually love, called um, Get All You Can From Everything You Got by Jay Abraham. And it's just about like how to just really do things um, in terms of business and how to really um, kind of squeeze everything out uh, from your productivity, from um, uh, your business perspective with never doing it in a harsh or, or negative way. But so get everything you can out of um, – get all you can out of everything you got. And then one more, which I actually really like, um, which is called The Magic of Thinking Big by uh, – I think it's David Schwartz is the author – And in terms of mindset, uh, you know, a lot of times when you think of mindset books, people go, yeah, 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 dream big. I got it. I got it. But it it really goes into specific examples of where we don't realize we're thinking small and how it affects us and how we can kind of change that thinking. Um, And I think the biggest problem we have um, is a problem we don't know we have, which is actually the premise of a book called Leadership and Self-Deception, which is a great (laughs) book, um, Arbinger Institute. But I, I think it's so true. Like if you don't realize you're having a problem, you can't solve it. So those are all a bunch of books that I just kind of rattled off, but hopefully one of them resonates with with our listeners here and, and they go read it because it really is powerful. That's great. We uh, we just had a managing partner from the Arbinger Institute, Mitch Warner, on the show, and people know about my years there. Big fan. Um, yeah, great book, man. Great. You know, speaking of mindset, have you heard of this one by Carol Dweck? It's called Mindset. The I have Stanford not. professor. Um, I think you might love it. It's, it's really similar to a lot of subjects you've talked about and just the ways where our thinking may limit, uh, us versus, um, the ways you can foster the kind of mindset that makes things seem more possible. And specifically as a parent, it's amazing to think about what language we use as our children are growing up and do we compliment them in ways that lead them to want to hold on to what they've done or want to explore what they could do. Um, does this does this talk about like growth and fixed mindset? Yep. Yep. Yo, that's it. I love. I, I haven't heard of that book, but I'm very familiar with like the research and this and the topic. And it's it's an incredible, just like school of thought that's emerging, which um, I'm, I resonate with tremendously. Yeah. Well, uh, listen. I love to ask uh, entrepreneurs with a, with a spouse and kids. How they manage the uh, the ambition versus not losing your family by working all the time. <laughs> Any anything that works for you as far as uh, being able to shift gears? Uh, yeah, man, great question. So I've got a, a beautiful wife who's um, the greatest woman in the world, and I think every guy who's married should think that. So I think that about my wife and two beautiful children, uh, two sons, and I think the greatest recommendation or strategy I can give to it is. Uh, it sounds weird, but just like let me explain it. Like you almost have to treat your wife and your children as if they were your most valuable client. And I think it's a mindset mm. that really resonates with with entrepreneurs. Because if I said to you, hey, you know, Jess, who is your greatest client that's worth the most to you that, you know, makes your business the you know, work so well, who's your best client? You, you think of them and you go, what would you do for that client? Or oh, anything. I, I bend over backwards for them. Like, I mean, they give me so much. They're so important. And I look at my family as like, they are my best client. You know, like how would I treat my business best client? And then I, I just kind of translate that to my family because if your family <laughs> is not happy, 
no one's happy. No one is happy. No one. You you can't be your best. So I just, how much attention would I give them? What customer service would I provide for them? And I just take this kind of skill set that I think I have really well in the business world, and I just use it in my personal life. And and I mean the the <laughs> dividends are high. Yeah, you're making me think about: Do I let my wife's calls go to voicemail because I'm working? Right. If your best client called, you pick it up, right? Like you pick it up. That has a that has a bunch of implications. That's that's super interesting. We should like maybe we could like come up with a list of things you can do to help turn your family, you know, treat your family like your best client. Right. I mean I mean, I think what you said though, I like I don't want to rush over because what you said is really powerful, right? Like if you're in a meeting and your best, best client calls and there's a big deal on the table, you'd probably pause it and be like, oh, excuse me, I need to take this. Hey, what's going on, John, or whatever. You know, but when our, when our wife or our kids call, we go, oh, and I can go to voice. That's, I could get back, no problem. But you have to be like, oh, my. And I've actually found, believe it or not, and if you want like a side benefit to this, um, I've actually found when you actually exemplify like family is important to you, um, you attract people who are actually more like value-centered. So like your clients, they won't be mm. annoyed by it. They'll be like, yo, this person has good values. So you'll lose the people who aren't value-centered and attract people who are, and then your business grows. So it actually could benefit you tremendously business-wise to interrupt the meeting to take your kid or wife's call. Um, so give it a try. Yeah, it's it's interesting, right? You know what I find too is just over the years of our ups and downs, we're coming up on year number, you know, four, this year will be uh, – We'll be married for 14 years. And uh, I think about all the ups and downs that marriages go through and ours certainly is no different. And the times when I was like on a trend of like preciously guarding my work time from family, it was almost like my wife feels like I was pulling the tug of war rope too far to my side. So then she tried to tug, tug back. So she was always asking, well, what, a, you know, well, what about this? Well, could you take Friday off? And right. And then it's funny how the reverse is true. Like, by giving more rope, by like trying to find ways to serve and like, so she doesn't have to ask where I'm like anticipating her needs. I find like the exact same reflection back where she's like trying to anticipate my needs and like, no, no, honey, we don't need that. You need to get your work done. And, uh, it's almost like the counterintuitive thing ended up a making life happier to live, but B actually, actually getting more time for the priorities because she could trust that what was actually a, what I said was a priority was actually a priority versus before when I said everything was a priority, right? <laughs> right, right. You know, there's there's a really interesting idea that I heard, um, and I mean, I'm I'm I think I'm in the middle of it right now, so I can't necessarily um, save results from it. But you know, if you actually took the time to treat your um, your personal relationship, especially marriage and kids, like if you just said, "I will make this the number one priority." And what a lot of people say is, oh, but I need to make money and business makes, you know, I need to take care of my family or I'm the sole breadwinner and, you know, all these things. But if you really say, let me just put all of my focus in what will make my family the happiest, um, it spills over into your business. You make better decisions. You're, you're a better person. And, you know, who wants to be a, a public success but a private failure? It, it is interesting, right? Because like that, you know, you think about the kind of person that wants to be an inventor or an entrepreneur and typically there is some sort of, you know, whether it's talent for focusing on something or just uh, an innate drive, you know, they're the, they're a hardworking kind of person by default, right? Um, those things become negative when, 
when you neglect the things that you say matter most, but your actions don't line up with your words, right? Right, right. It's integrity. All uh-huh. about integrity. Do you do you know uh, do you know the book How Will You Measure Your Life by uh, the Harvard professor Clayton Christensen? No, but I want to. Tell me about it. Fascinating. So he wrote that you know one of the best selling uh, tech books of all time called the innovators dilemma and, and some of the follow-ups to it. And he made the th- he made the number one spot on the thinkers 50 list twice in a row. So for wow. four years, he was rated the number one thinker on the globe. Right. I mean, just genius guy. Right. Yeah. Anyways, he writes this book and he like, he uses all his business logic on you and he's like, Hey, here's why so-and-so corporation will never receive the results they could is because they're moving their staff too often. They they don't have staff around any five-year projects because they transfer them every 18 months. So nobody wants to do a five-year project. They're not going to get the credit for the results. And and you're thinking, oh, what a dummy. Oh, yeah, I, I'd never do that, whatever. So about the time you're convinced, like, this is a terrible business principle. I should make sure to never do that. He turns it around and, like, brings up how – and a lot of my Harvard students or a lot of my – you know, my – the guys who graduated in my year of Harvard, this is how that same principle shows up in their family. And you're totally like – Oh crap, I do that. <laughs> but it's too late. It's too late not to believe in the principle because you've already, <laughs> right? And he just said, you know, it's a lot about like thinking, oh, I can raise my kids once I'm successful. Oh, I'll spend more time with them once we've got these financial goals. Um, and discounting that, you know, your teenager may not want to spend that much time with you if you haven't spent the time along the way. And anyways, uh, could, couldn't recommend it enough. Great book, but. Yeah, no, what, um, I want to make sure I get the title exactly because I'm actually on Amazon right now. What is it? How Will You Measure Your Life by Clayton Christensen. We'll put a link to it on your page on Ideation. Yeah, put a link too. to it. But like whenever someone gives me a book, like I have this like like this just thing. I go to Amazon and then I just purchase it like immediately. So I, it, I can't say there's no reason I can't read it. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I found the comment that you brought up about when people find out what your priorities are, that it attracts certain types, you know? Yeah. Um, I feel like, you know, modern media has made it so we're all supposed to pretend nobody has a religion anymore. But yeah, yeah, I find my buddies who live whatever their religion is, like, it actually makes me trust them more in business. And like, when I, you know, when I hear stories, I was just at the, um, I was presenting at uh, the National Association for Investment Bankers uh, in the fall, um, or earlier on last year. And um we met this guy, he's got a broker dealer and we were looking, we were looking for a BD. We we're thinking about starting another fund. And then I hear these stories about him as soon as he leaves about how the guy's been, you know, the guy is like makes jokes about cheating on his wife and stuff. Oh. And I was just like, eh. <laughs> thanks, but no thanks. Uh, you know what? Yeah. I'm not, you know, I might be losing this business card, right? Like it was, a, it was such an easy decision for me of like, Anyway, so I can see how that would happen for other people too. Of I, I will say like, you know, I do child rescue because I feel kind of like a duty and like <laughs> it, it, pearly gates in the sky when it's all over. I feel like I'm going to be accountable for, hey, you knew you were supposed to work on that issue, did you? <laughs> right? right? But it's been a huge business advantage where people who maybe normally don't have time for, for someone like me because they've achieved whatever level of success, they actually really want to talk about about how I'm giving back. And that's because they're in the point of their life where they're into philanthropy or something. And, um, and I've, anyways, I've lots especially, of side benefits. Yeah, I've, I've actually especially noticed, um, it's so interesting you talk about the side benefits of it. I've noticed that if you are interested in actually getting with high up people or powerful people or 
wealthy people or like just people who are not just like scraping the battle, who are, you know, kind of on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, like they're on the bottom. But if you are targeting or wanting to be connected with the easiest, fastest way is to connect with like where their heart is, like where their passion is. Um, there was actually a gentleman that I've been trying to get in touch with for for years. Like literally he was someone I was like, this dude I feel like is awesome. I would love to know him and learn from him. And I was just always trying to get onto his radar and I just couldn't. And then I found out that, you know, through a series of tragic events, he actually lost a um, a granddaughter um, because she was she was climbing on a um, a uh, uh, like an entertainment center in her home and the TV fell on her and she was like three years old and, and she passed away. And uh, it, it's a horrible, tragic story. And, you know, the. It could have been completely avoided if the there's these like really simple straps and you're a parent. So you've probably seen them that like bolt things to the, the wall. And a lot of parents don't know about them. You know, there's these horrible stories. Apparently there's kids all the time that, you know, step on a drawer or like they open pull the bottom drawer and pull a bookshelf off and it falls on them and hurts them or, or in, in this case, hardly kills them. Well, I found out about that. And I like just as a parent, it was like, holy cracker. I didn't know that was like a thing. So I, I sent a donation to it, you know? So it was one part like, Hey, like this is something that I actually believe in. I can totally get behind as a parent. But what I noticed is after I sent the donation, he messaged me and said, Hey, I saw you sent a donation, you know, thank you so much. And we started talking about that. And we, and we talked about that and we built from that. So it actually built the, the premise of our relationship, not because I was trying to sell him on why I can help his business or why he should work with me, but like we connected on something that was, was I think bigger than both of us and that allowed the door to open. So it's a really great way to also get in with the people who truly, you know, care and, and mean something with what they're doing philanthropically. It's great. You know, we've got a, we've got a potential guest that sounds like will be on the show here in the spring. It's a very famous hall of famer pro athlete that, uh, you know, super famous doesn't need, doesn't need to be on our show, but um, his people say have told me that he's he'll for sure come on, and it's because we're having him on to talk about his passion and philanthropy of of charities being more accountable for the good they do instead of just what percentage went to overhead, what percentage went to this. Right. And, uh, and it's great great principle of of uh, kind of <laughs> you're going to harvest whatever you plant, right? <laughs> right. Um, right. Well, listen, uh, before we go, any closing advice you have for, for people who are trying to achieve something? Just you maybe know, it's the best advice you ever got or things that you didn't realize until you paid the price. I think there's, yeah, it's, it's a great question. And what I would leave someone with is, is a very simple, simple concept. And we've alluded to it, you know, throughout the entirety, I think, of this interview is, you know, whatever you want to create mastery on, you have to break it down into what is it that I can actually do today that's going to move me, you know, one tick closer, whether it's, you know, a setting a small goal or, or letting it slip, you know, like you said, fitting into the cracks of your day. I think so many people think that success in life comes from uh, this Herculean effort and, and, and often it can. But what I've actually found more consistently um, is it comes from, you know, giving yourself like I think it's one percent of your day. I think 1% of your day is 15 minutes. Um, so I could be wrong on that. But like if you just, you know, 15 minutes, you wrote a blog post today or 15 minutes you journaled or 15 minutes you sent an email out to people you don't know. Or for like if you just took the smallest increment of time and did something that would actually move you toward your goal, 
you'd be infinitely more successful. You know, and we say this on my podcast and, and I'll say it here with you that, you know, the information that Jess and I talked about it will not help your life in any way. Like the information itself is completely useless. The implementation of this information will have huge effects in your life. So don't just listen to this podcast and, and this audio recording and go, oh, man, I'm so glad I did that. That was really good. I really appreciated, you know, what Aurel and Jess put together. And then they do nothing with it. Like you say, okay, I listen to it. What's the thing I'm going to do now because I invest in my time? What action will I take? And I think the more we get action biased and we get more action oriented and we say, okay, I just did this. Now what is my next step? And then go do it like right now, like today, not tomorrow, not a week from now, not when you have the time. If you have this impetus to action, you will have more and more compounded results of success. And I think more people become, you know, podcast junkies and book junkies and seminar junkies. And they just go for the high, but not for the action. And if you go for the action, everything in your life changes. Love it. Action over words. Hey, man, really appreciate you making time for us on the show today. Thanks for coming on. Yo, this was truly, truly a pleasure. Thank you so, so much. And that's the show. Thanks for listening today. Again, if you're interested in the bonus materials that we will be producing, make sure to come to our website and join the Ideation Collective while it's still free. The website, iCollective.co slash free. Again, iCollective.co slash free. And as always, if you want to learn more about getting involved in helping the team rescue kids from traffickers, please visit iCollective.co slash child rescue. Hi, welcome to the Subway ad for $2.99 subs. How would you like it? Uh, I'll take Drill Sergeant, please. You got it. All right, now listen up. I want each and every one of you to drop and give me a six-inch meatball marinara, cold-cut combo, veggie delight, or black forest ham on your choice of bread with any veggies you want for just $2.99 each. Make it what you want at participating restaurants. Additional charge for extras plus applicable tax. No additional discounts or coupons may be applied.